man, who's that cat coming down the street? I don't know, but it sounds to me like that missing man with the bones. Sure having himself a ball. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker Podcast on the Vlog Talk Radio Network. I'm Burke Allen, live in Washington, D.C., and I have to admit that it's not often I fanboy over our guest, but today is an exception. If you were a kid growing up in the mid-60s to mid-1980s, the world-famous Harlem Globetrotters were everywhere. They had no less than three, count them three, Saturday morning TV shows, and two of them were cartoons. One of them, they were superheroes, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, they were on dozens of movies and television shows in prime time, and of course were always on ABC's Wide World of Sports, Meadowlark Lemon, Curly Neal, Geese Osby, Marcus Haynes, and others became household names, and uh, one of the last of the fabulous five of the golden years of the Harlem Globetrotters joins us on the show today. Please say hello to Nate Branch joining us live from his home in Oakland, California. Nate, it is so good to talk with you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Bert. Really, enjoy. You, um, as most Harlem Globetrotters, are not actually from Harlem. That's right. In fact, uh, there was a few that were uh, born in Harlem. Uh, Bobby Hunter, uh, Pablo Robinson, uh, his brother. There's been several from Harlem. Do you remember as a, as a kid the first time you became aware of the Harlem Globetrotters? I think I was a teenager. Uh, they used to come on once a year, I think, in Wide World of Sports. And I, well, I would watch them. But I thought it was good. It was good. But I'll tell you, uh, when I went to the uh, University of Nebraska, um, my coach gave uh, myself and Stu Lance two tickets to go see the Harlem Globetrotters in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. We had to drive about 70 miles. So uh, my, my roommate and I, we went, we watched the game. They had Connie Hawkins, Mellor Glimmer, Curry Neal. And, uh, but at the time, we were number 11th in the nation, Nebraska was. So we were, I don't know, I wouldn't call it we were getting cocky, but we watched the Harvest Low Trials. We said, man, we, these guys are not playing any ball, man. Look at this stuff. <laughs> and then I saw Connie, I saw Connie Hawkins run. Uh, ball was rolling down the floor, kind of fast, and he caught up with it with one hand. He picked it up, started dribbling, and went in and dunked it. I said, "Oh, wait a minute, these guys are pretty good, man." Yeah, you but, know, uh, you were a Husker, and that had to be a huge lifestyle change for you from growing up in in Northern California and moving out to Nebraska. You know, tell me about that that life change for you, especially then and. I mean, let's face it, it was Black History Month. This is in the early 60s where uh, things were different out there. What was that change like for you to go from being a, a California kid uh, to going to Nebraska? Yeah, well, I went to the, uh, Nebraska in 1963 on a four-year scholarship. Uh, when I finished high school, I had about 35 different offers from different colleges. Uh, the only reason I chose Nebraska was Will Chamberlain was a friend of mine at the time when I was in high school. And he was my, also my idol. He played for the San Francisco Warriors at that time. But anyway, I asked him, I told him, I said, bro, which one should I go to? And he says, well, I won't tell you which one to go to. He said, but if I hadn't have gone to Kansas, I would have went to Nebraska. Well, that, that's all I needed to hear from him. Uh, I think at the time I went, it was 11,000 students. And maybe 100 were Afro-American. Uh, if that many, because you know, at that time, Nebraska was a big uh, football powerhouse. 
Right. But I wouldn't trade that extra four years for nothing, man. I love those people. I love the place. You were drafted by the old ABA, is that right? That's correct. The uh, Oakland Wolves. Well, I live not in Oakland. I'm about five minutes from where the, they used to play and where the Warriors used to play. Right. And yet you wound up being a part of the, the sort of legendary uh, Globetrotters during that time. So how did that all play out? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Uh, the, you know, I, I just wanted to play the one year and get back in shape and get back in the league because uh, I wanted to play against Will. That was my boy. But anyway, uh, uh, I ended up staying 15 years, and I only wanted to stay one. So but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because it's taken me everywhere that I would have never gone in the NBA, no other way. You know, with the Globetrotters, um, you must have played in some pretty amazing places and circumstances. I have a vivid memory as a kid of seeing a, a, a wide world of sports game with you guys uh, on an aircraft carrier. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's right. The Enterprise. Yeah. We played in some places, bull rings over in Spain. Uh, we had a portable floor that was more like just pieces of plywood uh, placed together and portable baskets. Uh, we played in bull rings. We played in Athens, Greece, in the soccer stadium. We had 90,000 people. Wow. And as you know, a Globetrotter game, a lot of it is verbal. But it's so, uh, we're down there, but it, people were laughing because men loved him and he did all this crazy stuff with the ball. There were no fans near the floor. They were all up in the in in, in the stadium stands. So uh, we, we had to just do our thing physically. So uh, it was quite an experience. As a serious basketball player, was it tough for you to sort of recalibrate yourself to the the theatricality and the fun aspect of the, the Globetrotters? No, not really, because uh, uh, you did the same physical things, except when you didn't have the, the competition, the, the, the physical contact, somebody trying to block your shot all the time. Uh, but uh, we played 300 times a year. Wow. So uh, there was not much adjustment. It was a learning experience every night. You know, uh, training camp lasted 10 days, then we hit the road for 300 games. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, with the Globetrotters, this was at a time in America when, I mean, it was in turmoil. Perhaps uh, no time, with the exception of the last few months, has America been in that kind of turmoil. You know, Dr. King had been assassinated, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Vietnam was underway when you joined the, the team. Take, take me back and take our, our listeners back to that time and what it was like in America as you sort of barnstormed across it with the Globetrotters with all of this turmoil happening around you? You know, uh, uh, each city, we played one night, then we move on to the next city, except for the major cities. And I've been in places like in uh, South Carolina, in the South, where I did see some prejudice stuff, uh, but not much. Uh, it was a time where when the Globetrotters came to town, Oh, the animosity, the hatred and stuff kind of went away because in that building, there was some Blacks, some Afro-Americans, some, some of everybody in there. But we were all on one accord and you didn't see any. seemed like the, the, a Globetrotter game was the time to drop all that crap for a while and just enjoy, you know. Uh, the only thing I've, I personally experienced was uh, 
I knew it was in either North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, a buddy of mine, we went into the, the hotel bar uh, to uh, get a beer. And on my way out, somebody threw a beer at me, you know. But our bus driver saw the guy who did it, and they went outside and had words. And uh, he said, you don't do that stuff, you know. And I, I wouldn't retaliate. I just hear some crazy people. And they, I just let it go. But I, I, by and large, we didn't face my era didn't face much uh, segregation. I know there were some hotels that I didn't like staying in. <laughs> they were kind of uh, rotten, but uh, it was good. This match was good. It was a learning experience. With with the, the Globetrotters of that era, I mean, you did step into it at a time when, uh, you know, the team had been around since the 1920s, but it really became this amazing cultural phenomenon um, you know, and I was a kid of that era and, and, you know, it's probably impossible for young people today to even imagine just how popular that Globetrotters team is. I mean, we, we knew every player's name. We followed you. We, we saw you, you're on wide world of sports. It seemed like every month. And, uh, you know, when you came to, to our town, the auditoriums always sold out. What was it that you think was the impetus for, were you guys taken off so big at that time when you were part of the team? I, well, I think it was really, like you said, the wide world of sports was once a year. And once we got to do the shows like Gilligan's Island, uh, the Popcorn Machine, the Cartoon, uh, we did some shows, uh, nighttime shows. We did Johnny Carson show with Bill Cosby as the host. Uh, we did Merv Griffin at that time, uh, uh, Donnie and Marie. And I think that's what, what really... Uh, that exposure gave a, a boost to the Globe Charters. Tell me a little bit about those other guys that you played with. I, I remember um, as a very young guy, one of the very first uh, uh, shows I ever saw and, and, and did an interview as a young broadcaster was with uh, Marcus Haynes and his Harlem Wizards, his offshoot team. I must have been you know 16 years old and uh, Marcus was probably in his 60s at that time. It was still amazing. But tell me about some of those guys. And let's start with him. Tell me about your experience with Marcus Haynes. Marcus Haynes taught me how to do the dribble that he did. I could never do it because uh, Marcus was about 5'10", 5'11", weighed maybe 175 pounds. I was weighing 210. So the sliding that uh, he did on his knees, we had little knee pads then. But anyway, uh, Marcus uh, he was quite a unique individual, very classy man. Uh, not a fun to be around. He could tell you stories because he played with Goose Tatum, you know, and all that stuff. But uh, was, we became really good friends. He used to call me Thumpy. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, he was quite a guy, man, a classy guy. Wore a sport coat every day on the bus, always stayed dressed. And just his wisdom, the stories he told. It was worth just, it was a pleasure and an honor just to meet him. You had to play with him. What about we just lost it within the last year, Curly Neal? Tell me about Curly. Oh, what a guy. What a guy. <laughs> what a guy. Oh, Curly was, uh, he was Curly. You know, he's the most recognizable guy from afar in the stands. Uh, that's Curly with the ball head. But uh, really a nice guy. Yeah. He knew what his job was. He did it well every night. Uh, he 
he would sometimes he'd go overboard signing autographs. He loved little kids. He loved little kids. He let you see the, the time of our games when we sit on the bench, Curtis and I would always sit on beside each other, you know, because every time every night you're watching the game, there's something that's funny to us. You know, <laughs> the fans may not know, but we know it, and then we just crack up. But uh, the times that we spend together on the bus, uh having dinner sometimes. Uh, there's not a, a, a funner guy, a funnier guy, and a more nice-looking man than Curly Neal. Yeah, another unique. 15 years playing with him was, was great. You know, uh, in 2019, late 2019, I did an event, um, and one of the special guests there, they said, was Sweet Lou Dunbar. And this <laughs> young cat walked in, and it was Sweet Lou too, his son, who now is a Globetrotter. Oh, oh wow. You okay. played with the original Sweet Lou Dunbar with that afro. Tell me about Sweet and Lou, that, who I understand is still a part of the Globetrotters organization. Yes, I, uh, I just talked to Sweet Lou a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah, he, he's another funny guy. Uh, he didn't start out as being a showman, but with his big afro, yeah, it was he was a natural. He was a natural. He learned a lot from middle art, you know, because show business is nothing but timing, you know. The, 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 and Sweet Lou had the gift. And he's still, he's still a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He, he took everything easy. He didn't get upset about nothing. And uh, uh, just love him. You can't help but love Sweet Lou. Because uh, that laugh of his is it's infectious. It's contagious. Yeah. I remember the uh, the Super Globetrotters cartoon that they made about you guys. Uh, uh, you know, the, his afro was kind of like Superman's telephone booth. You know, <laughs> everything happened in and out of, of Sweetie's afro in the cartoon. Doing the cartoon was fun to do with those guys. Uh, I was fluid, man. Turn the water. That's uh, right. But uh, they took us into the studio. I think they did our characters uh, in one day. And then everybody else did our voices. And I was honored because Scatman Carruthers did my voice uh, on the show. It was Sue Gillum and some other uh, celebrities who did the, the, the voices. And uh, we got a chance to meet them. And that was, that was beautiful. For Sweet Lou, there's only one. What only an honor. One. And of course, you know, Metal Lark Lemon, who just became an idol for millions of kids back in the 70s and 80s. Tell me about Metal Lark. Metalark uh, was my brother. Uh, we became so close that uh, we go to a hotel or something and there's like a drugstore or a, a supermarket nearby. He'd go out and buy some things, but he'd always buy two sets of it. Uh, if he bought fruit, he'd bring me a bag of fruit. And if I died, do the same thing. That's how close we were. Uh, Metalark, he never missed a game. Uh, to pray. I remember when they used to have headaches, he used to tell me, you know, I got a head and an injury. But when they say, and now the Harlem Globetrotters, you would never know it. None of us would go out and do his job. And uh, he took pride, pride in what he did. And uh, I, I'd be amazed, especially at his talent. But uh, uh, when he became a minister, I had him come out here to California, I mean, out to Oakland, and he, uh, I, I played piano at my church. And uh, he came out and he preached one Sunday for us. And, and, and he 
sign autographs and all that stuff. But I, to imagine Little Lord Lemon, the preacher, it was, it was quite, it was quite good. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean, you know, it, when you be around the guy for so long, he's just natural. He's natural, you know, sure. I, I tell guys now, we have this Zoom meeting with the ex trotters now. We get together on the Zoom every now and then. And uh, the thing that we did, man, you don't know, no one person can write a book. It's going to take a conglomeration of a lot of guys to, because a lot of things lead up to the game. But the game, you would never know if anybody had a problem or if they were feeling weird. Remember, we only had 10 players. Right. So if someone got hurt or feeling good, uh, the show went on. We got down to six players one time. Uh, and the show went on because we knew what we had to do. We played 23 games in 16 days. One wow. So, uh, wow. you know, it, it was a job. It was what you did. But uh, just to get the admiration from the fans made it all worthwhile. Yeah. When you were in the middle yeah. of that, Nate, and, and you know, every – Every game, the audience was having so much fun. Um, was it fun for you? I mean, you're a young guy. You're you're like being shot out of a cannon. You see, you do 300 games a year. Were you able to to at the time realize what a blessing it was that I get paid to play a game I love and have fun and bring that joy, or did it happen so fast that you didn't appreciate it when it was going on? No, it's, it's sort of like that, you know. Uh, like I say, every night you're in a different place. Uh, most times you don't know anybody there. Uh, but after the game, by the time the game's over, you've met some people, you've met somebody, somebody gave you a smile or patted you on the back. Uh, but at the time, when you first start, you were kind of amazed at the number of people coming to watch the Grove Tires. Uh, it's not like having one or two games a week, but every night. There's somebody else new. Uh, the gym was different gym, you know. Uh, you don't get to, to go out in the city much, but uh, just looking out that window at the different landscapes and everything, it's, it's just amazing. It's an education all in itself. The games were the easy part. The traveling was the toughest. Sure. Yeah. Sure. When it's, when it's, yeah. Sure. Yeah. But uh, at the time, I didn't realize. How fortunate I was until about about my fifth year, I started realizing that what I was doing was affecting so many people, you know. And uh, I still get calls from kids send me pictures when I took with them in the locker room when they were this tall. Now they have kids of their own, right? And uh, some of them have grandkids. So uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm blessed to have affected people that way. You know, it wasn't about the money. God knows it, because when I started in the uh, with the Trotters, Will Chamberlain was the highest paid player in the NBA, and uh, he made eighty thousand a year. Imagine that! So, Imagine uh, that, Will Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah, yeah eighty thousand a year was his salary. He and he was the top paid in the NBA. So I started at ten thousand because I wasn't a Will Chamberlain, but I was getting ten thousand dollars a year. But my rent was one hundred and ninety dollars a month from my apartment so that was pretty good money so i was blessed <laughs> i wasn't complaining right the um the generals I, i've always wondered about 
what the the relationship is like off the court with you guys and the generals was there was there animosity did the fact that they just got their hats handed to them night after night did it begin to wear on those guys was there any of the the black white stuff going on back then tell me about that relationship with those guys they were great guys no no that wasn't any heat or animosity uh uh, it, it was funny because uh, when I first started with the Charters, I played on the Generals. They wanted me to, to play on the Generals for two weeks so I know how the show goes. But uh, no, the Generals were—they knew what their role was, you know, because there was a sort, certain portion of the Globe Charter game uh, that's set up. All right, but there's a portion of the game where we just play straight basketball because the Generals, you know, they third quarter. Half of the third quarter was just straight basketball because Mellark was on the bench. So we put our young guys in and they just played straight basketball. And the generals would play their best. They would play their best. And some, the, the object of the Glow Charter game that we'd always stay 10 points ahead. We try to stay 10 points ahead. And that way, if we had to come up with something real fast. I mean, the generals were legit basketball players. They weren't just patches. There's a portion of that game where it's just straight basketball, and sometimes those guys would be very hot. Then the middle arc would come back in the game and ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, when you watch okay. basketball today, you watch the NBA uh, as a guy who played, you know, in a different era. What's your take on on the players today and and the level of competition in professional basketball compared to when you played in the 70s and 80s? In the earlier days when I played ba basketball, you were either right-handed or left-handed. You know, uh, scouting reports would say he's right-handed, so portion to his left. But these guys today, they play right hand, left hand. It's all the same. Here. They're doing things the go trotters used to do. Right. But uh, it, it was unique right. to be ambidextrous with both hands. These guys grow up doing that stuff, switching over hands. You know, uh, in my day, I would never think about shooting with my left hand. These guys shooting with their left hand. And but the, the the talent that they have today it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what these guys can do. Uh, Greatest of all time, you were friends with Wilt Chamberlain. Some people would put him on that list. Who is it? Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? I would say Wilt Chamberlain. That was, I mean, he used to come down. I take me shopping with him in San Francisco. Uh, he come down, my mother would cook dinner for him. He sit at the table. My father looked at him because he ate a half a ham. And my father said, man, I'd rather buy your clothes than feed you, bro. You know? <laughs> but uh, I, I have to pick I have to pick Will because I have that relationship with him. But there's so many. Uh, I was talking to a guy about Pete Maravich yeah. back in the day. Most people didn't get to see him play, but he had to tell her that they, he could play in the NBA right now because he was right hand, left hand, behind the back. He was the, If you watch an NBA game and you watch a uh, Harlem Globetrotter game, we do the figure eight with the ball. This is exactly what the NBA is doing right now. If you look at it close, they're doing the same thing. Yeah. Hey, that, you know, that so, leads me to a, an interesting thought about your time with the Globetrotters. Was it difficult for you to learn some of – some of those trick plays and those trick shots, because 
you know, you don't, as a college player for Nebraska, they don't teach you, for example, how to spin the ball on your finger. They don't teach you how to do the behind your back and the under the leg stuff. Was that stuff difficult to learn? Because it, it looks to us fans like it's, you know, amazingly difficult. Yeah. You learn it, you know, you learn it, and you make mistakes. Uh, well, even in the game, uh, when you start as a rookie, you know, I'm throwing the ball in the wrong spot at the wrong time. But uh, after, like I say, 300 games a year, you learn fast because uh, you're there every night. So every night, you got time, you take a ball to your room if you want to do all that spinning stuff because that was part of our trademark. Uh, so far as behind the back passes and stuff like that, you practice that. And uh, it comes quick, it comes quick when you do it every night. And you have the pressure of doing it right for the fans. You mentioned uh, earlier when you did the the movie, the TV movie, the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. And one of my oldest friends, dearest friends, is Dream of Denver, who was married for 30 years to Bob Denver, Gilligan. And she actually had a part in that that, uh, movie. I wonder what your recollections are of of doing the Gilligan's Island movie. What do you remember about that experience? Oh, man, that was fun. We did it at uh, Universal Studios. Uh, it was fun. It was so much fun. that They, you know, we had, they gave us a wardrobe, and we got to keep our wardrobe. And, uh, but just meeting the stars, you know, uh, to, be, uh, to say that I sat in uh, Scatman Carruthers' trailer, you know, talking to you and having a glass of wine. Uh, but to meet those people, man, uh, Mary Ann and the, the Howells and Gilligan, Bob Denver, uh, uh, even right now, my my wife watches uh, Mission Impossible uh, every night. She has me put it on TV. Anyway, to Martin Landau right. and his wife, they were on. So, and uh, to meet those guys, man, they're so real people. They're so down to earth. It's ridiculous. Uh, that was an experience that I really enjoyed. Really enjoyed that. You, uh, you did that movie it. towards the end of your run with the Globetrotters. Tell me about that. Tell me about your separation from the Globetrotters and what led to that. Well, it was uh, 1983 when I left. Okay. Uh, someone, I don't know how it would happen, but when I went to Phoenix, Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, Tucson. I got off the plane because my mother was in the hospital, so I stayed behind with the road drivers because uh, uh, she was in the hospital, so I wanted to go see her for a day. I told the trainer to put my bags out of my room on the bus for me because I wasn't going to come over here and go right back home. When I got to Tucson, Arizona, I picked up my suitcase and somebody said, Nate Branch? I said, yeah. He said, come with us, please, right? So he take me to this room and he opened up my suitcase and there's some drugs in it. And I said, wow, man. I said, this, he said, this yours? Yeah, and I said, no, it's not mine. I don't do drugs, man. They let me go to the game. They took me to the game. He said, somebody doesn't like you because uh, your suitcase wasn't locked. So somebody could have put that in there. But it, to me, why would somebody do that? But anyway, they let me go to the game. They told me, come on, after the game, they were in the, in the uh, they were downstairs in the bar. They said, go upstairs and shower. And so I go up and shower. I'm sitting on the bed, 
shower and drying off, and there's my picture on TV saying that I was just busted at the airport. I'm going, Jesus, we just finished the game. So I went to court, and I found out that somebody had set me up. But anyway, that's what happened. That's why I left. They started coming with me that night. <laughs> I said, well, don't you want to hear my side? This is no. I, well, there's some other issues that goes up the leagues up to that, but that's not important right now because it's got me where I am. And I, I don't regret it, but I know I was set, set up because I didn't do drugs. But the Globe tried to fire me before they even knew, found the facts out. So, wow. But it, it did me some good. I, I got to go home and spend some time with my family and really realize that there is life after basketball, you know? I'm, I'm content, I'm happy. So uh, it's all good. Tell me how Nate Branch fills his days and tell me about life after the Globetrotters. Well, it takes a little adjustment uh, when you leave. Uh, but then you realize you got to get a job or do something because you get tired of seeing you and your lady doesn't want you sitting around the house all day long. So, uh, but then you, you've been spoiled. You've been spoiled making money you know, some decent money. And then all of a sudden it's not coming in anymore. Right. You didn't make enough to, you know. But uh, uh, I, I adjusted. I, I went right to work at church, uh, plan for churches, which is, they pay me. So I do a lot of writing. I just, in fact, I'd like to get your address. I'll send you my stuff. I got about 20 songs that I've written and recorded. Would love right? to hear them. And I've sold some. Sold some. Yep. Right now, I'm writing. Well, I did a song called "The Harlem Globetrotters," and uh, I'm going to re-record it now because uh, the Globetrotters. I wrote a song. That song, "The Harlem Globetrotters," that I wrote, we did it. I think it was 1971. Uh, it was on Wild World Sports. Uh, Howard Cosell did the commentary. They used my song as the background music. Nice. And then. And then the Globetrotters wanted me to sign a contract saying that I would not use that song without their permission for 10 years. And I refused. I said, this is, you know, I didn't want anything for this song. That was just a hobby for me. But they thought it was good enough to put it on Wild World Sports. But I'm going to re-record it because there's some other people that want it now. So I'm going to do that. You prefer playing basketball or playing piano? Which is more fun? Well, to eat, I, <laughs> I think I play basketball. But uh, the music has always been first in my life, you know, because we'd be sitting on the bench during the game and I'd be writing songs in my mind. Because uh, music was my outlet. Melark Lemon used to love to sing. In fact, we got an act together where he, I played the piano. He sang at nightclubs in the clubs and discotheques at certain hotels we'd stay in. He'd go down, sit in with the band. I'd sit in with the band. But music is always my first love. And it's something that I can do now. I don't have to worry about uh, running out of breath. You know? <laughs> so I love it. I love it. You know, the there's a correlation, Nate, between what the Globetrotters did in the 60s and 70s and what those great Motown artists did as well in the 60s and 70s, where you really did bring white kids and black kids together, both on the basketball court and through music, and uh, and I wonder if you've ever thought about those similarities, or or if along the way maybe you you run up against any of those great great Motown artists of the day. 
You know, when I uh, was with the Globe Charters, uh, Lionel Richie left the Commodores. Uh, I was going to be the next lead singer. I met the Commodores. They came down and picked me up, took me up to their house in Moho and Drive in LA. They wrote two songs for me to record. And uh, uh, the Globe Trotters wouldn't let me do it. They said, we have you on the contract. We need you out here with us. I met Lionel Richie in New York. He says, I heard your stuff, man. He said, you're going to be OK. So uh, I had an opportunity there, but I guess fate, if anything called fate, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But I, you know, to be, I had a chance to sit down with Charlie Pride at the piano. Wow. Uh, Ronnie, wow. Mills, Ronnie Millsap. I uh, got to play with him. Ben Vereen, Johnny Cash. No uh, kidding. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to sit in. I got to sit in Elvis Presley's Cadillac. You know, been to the White House three times. Met two presidents. Oh man, uh, what can I tell you? Kissed Elizabeth Taylor on the cheek. Uh, met the cast from uh, Sanford and Son, uh, the Jeffersons, Star Trek. Oh. Man, so many. I mean, the experiences and the people that I've met. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I never forget, let me tell you the story. I went to uh, Vegas. No, it was in Reno, Nevada. And uh, Bill Cosby was headlining. He was doing his show. So I sent a note back saying that I was in the audience. So he was doing his show. And halfway through the show, he stops. He says, turn the lights up. And they turned the house lights up. And he says, no, it's Nate. And I raised my hand. He says, stand up. You see, this is the guy that wrote this song, the Harlem Globetrotters, that was just on Why I Wear Sport. So I went back in the dressing room afterwards. You know, I figured this way, if anything, when you finish doing the show, you'd be nice and cordial with everybody, but you really want your downtime. So I would do that. I'd say, hey, Bill, good to see you, man. I said, I know you're busy. I'm gone. So it's all right. All right. And we... We still, we, we don't talk anymore, but uh, <laughs> we just stay in touch a little bit. You know, you and those guys, uh, you had an enormous influence on on a couple of generations of young men, and we all looked up to you, and it's been a real honor to talk with you today. Yes, I just want to say that uh, once a globetrotter, always a globetrotter, because people still give me that respect wherever I go, and they find out, even my neighbors across the street, I try not to. It's, uh, somehow they found out that I played with the Globetrotters. Now, every, every time I walk my dog, there he goes, there he goes, there goes Nate. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's been a pleasure, Bert. Thank you, man. I enjoyed it very much. Take care, Bert. Hey! What? Globetrotters, oh yeah.